Good morning. I tell you, another beautiful Monday morning here in the heartland of America. One of the most wonderful things is we are just celebrating Thanksgiving, and now we're coming into that time of year, which I really celebrate. Not only do I get outstanding gifts. Yes, I've been that good. But these gifts are useful. For example, last year, I used one of my gifts to heat an entire home for three families. I mean, yes, I got that much cold, folks. <laughs> that happens when you don't keep St. Nick happy. But I want to share with you today a few moments uh, with one of my dearest friends. Uh, he's been an outstanding friend, a, a, an excellent colleague. And uh, I'll tell you, I've, I've ridden his coattails in life, and it's gotten me to a lot of places I'd never get. And I'm going to say that to embarrass him just a little bit. But overall, life is what you make it. And I have a saying, you've heard me say it many times on this podcast, that it's not where you start, it's where you finish in life that's the most important. And not too unlike him, my career started in a smaller, smaller community, and uh, he has now become someone that is internationally leading a profession and doing an outstanding job with that. So I want to say to you, if you're looking to make big steps in life to help lots of people do better things in life, think big, grow big, and go big is one of the suggestions I would recommend. And that served us all well in our profession of the CPA world. With that said, without further ado, I want to introduce today our special guest, one of my best friends, one of the best golfers as an amateur that I know. I mean, this guy lives on a golf course somewhere. I know he's got a hidden home that I can't find. But anyway, I'd like to introduce to you the CEO and president of the Association Amer Association of International Certified Professional Accountants, the AICPA, my dear friend, Barry Melanson. Welcome, Barry. Jimmy, thank you, but I am not that good of a golfer, and I definitely don't play that much. I haven't touched a golf club in three months, so don't give me that. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, he's very modest, but I got to tell you what, at the end of the day, he doesn't have to touch them very often to play as well as he does, but hey, he's shooting his age, you know, and I got to tell you, though, he looks great for 101, uh, but anyway, <laughs> hey, Barry, welcome. I know you're very busy. I uh, just want to take a few minutes today to help our listeners in 58 countries, many of which we have a presence now as the association across the globe. And so I appreciate your time. But hey, I want to jump into this and give our listeners a little background about Barry Melanson. Tell us a little bit about what, what was childhood like for you, Barry, and how many siblings you have and so forth. Well, Jimmy, I grew up in South Louisiana on the Gulf Coast, oil country, great seafood country, fishing community, very small community very rural uh, is, you know, environment. My, uh, my closest friend was probably a two mile drive. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's just a very rural perspective. I have, um, I have an older sister and a brother, one 10 years older than me and one 11 years older than me. Uh, I'll give you an interesting stat. My father was one of 13. My mother was one of six and I was the youngest of all 19 of those families. So um, I, I'm truly the baby of multiple families from that standpoint. And, and really, you know, grew up um, hunting and fishing and, and, and fighting off snakes and alligators and, um, you know, just learning life at sort of its, uh, its basics. And, and that's, that's sort of my roots. Hey, I love those roots. So let me just ask you, what is your favorite Cajun meal item from South Louisiana? Well, I'd have to go with boiled crawfish. I think those are, those are fabulous. I, uh, 
I, when we, I grew up, we actually had a crawfish pond, as they would be called. And I used to come home from school and, and, and crawfish a bit and sell a sack of crawfish to make some extra money and stuff. Back then it was really cheap right now. It's sort of expensive. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, so I would have to go that way. That would be my favorite. Sort of hard to beat that. I got to tell you, my friend, we go down, not during Mardi Gras. I'm just not that crazy, but I do go down and we enjoy it when the, the Sooners, you know, my football team plays sometimes in the Mercedes Benz Coliseum down there. Uh, but I will say this. I love that shrimp etouffee, my friend. If you, do you eat much of that when you're down South? Yeah, but it's not my favorite. That that yeah. that's um, you know that it's it's a fancy Cajun food. There, I'm much more like uh, simple minded. Sip, I love it. I love that stuff. <laughs> well, let's talk just a little bit about. So you're the youngest of three. I hold the heralded position of youngest of six, and my dad is the youngest boy. He's got a sister just younger of thirteen children as well. Wow. Uh, so I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. So let's talk a little bit about. Uh, how you determined you wanted to be involved in the CPA profession, and then particularly non-traditionally. So you you started out in the CPA profession, working in a CPA firm, but then moved into a leadership executive role from the association perspective. Give us a give us a little reason why you did that. Yeah, I, you know, I went to a very nondescript school, uh, Nichols State, then called Nichols State University, and um, which was about you know fifteen miles from where I grew up. And, you know, it was cost effective. I, I had the, you know, the good grades and could have gone a lot of different places, but economics was a part of that. Um, and actually didn't go to school majoring in accounting. I went thinking I was going to be a lawyer majoring in government. And uh, after in, in my second semester, um, I just thought business was a better calling for me. And I ended up with a, a major in accounting and a minor in government. And, and Jimmy, my, my perspective was to, to go to work for a decent sized firm in Houston, Texas and move to Houston. I was getting married right out of school. I finished school very quickly. I, I, uh, I graduated from high school in three years and college in three and a half. So I was out of college at 20. And um, there, was a, there was a new firm being created in my hometown, less than 100,000 people in my hometown. And um, you know, frankly, they offered me the same amount of money the big city of Houston did or the big city of New Orleans did. So I went I went with that firm and um, I was a partner in that firm by 25, which was one of my goals. But ultimately, I was really engaged in, in the profession. And I, and, I, and I thought about the profession very holistically, strangely for my age, probably. I literally was on a, a CPA professional committee the day I passed the CPA exam. One of my partners were two partners in the firm at the time. And he walked down the hall and and he 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 says, I'm calling up the Louisiana CPA Society and I'm taking myself off this committee and putting you on it because I think you need to do that. And so he saw some things in me, I guess. And you know, from that, my involvement led to when there was an opening for the executive director position. I had been a partner about three years at the time. Uh, people saying you ought to do this, you'd be great. And sort of it wasn't like a grand plan. It was it was something that that people around me and others encouraged me to do and thought I would be good at. And I took the shot and figured I could always go back into public practice if that's what I wanted to do. And and then, uh, you know, just about, uh, I guess, nine years later than that, uh, eight to nine years later than that, I was um, I was selected CEO of the American Institute in 1995. You know, that's quite a quick ladder to climb. And, and I can assure you, I think you're very well equipped for that. I always 
I always worry about the day that I can call up my friend Barry and he says, Oh, can't I'm on a golf course because I'm done. I'm ready. <laughs> and then I'll go, what course, what hole I'll be there. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, you didn't really plan to be an association exec. It just kind of, uh, just kind of happened. You said. Yeah, I think it was, you know, my, my involvement in the profession at a very young, I, that combination with a government minor with a major in accounting is a, it's a regulated profession. And, I understood those things and I was very involved in the in the regulatory and political process in Louisiana. And I think it was just sort of a marriage, but I always had a passion for it. It was like the profession was bigger than just what you could do individually. And um, I think that played out and, 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 I, and I put a lot of effort into that and people saw it and really encouraged me to do it rather than me having a grand plan. You know, that's uh, that's the way I look at planning as well. I had a five-year, a 10-year, and a 25-year plan. I got to tell you, I hit my fives, I hit my tens. That 25 is a stretch. Do you have any, quote, stretch goals of yours still at this stage in your career that you'd like to hit? You know, I, I was, I'm a big goal person, um, particularly early in my career and written goals. I, I, I tell this at our own Leadership Academy I had a goal that said that I wanted to literally fly around the country and get off of planes and make speeches. And I tell you, by the time I was 37, I was definitely doing that. And it's not around the country, it's around the world. And so um, that was one of them. I, I probably had some not realistic ideals about when I wanted to retire and I did not make that goal, but that was you know, primarily as much as about choice and enjoying what you were doing. Uh, and from here, I think there's some boards and commissions that I, I would like to be on once I retire. Um, I, I think my experience on a global basis, and it's tough to be on boards today, particularly of, of public companies, but I do think that um, having seen what I have seen and, and helped to build what I've built, that um, I think I have some things that I can still add in that space. Oh, I think you'd be a tremendous asset to any board. I, I will say to you, though, that I believe a lot of CPAs in our world would be a tremendous asset to some of the boards we see that can bring a lot of the background from the audit perspective, attestation functions other than audit, and just generally business mindset. You know, I tell people that we as CPAs are the truly trusted advisors to the stakeholders of the business world. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, the trusted advisor is really critical, particularly when you think about the literally millions of, of private businesses, uh, you know, the advisory role in a public company gets gets a little bit more complicated as it relates to independence and doing audit. But the reality is, is that the small businesses are the heart and soul of not only the United States, clearly in the United States, but in most economies around the world. And it's it's complicated being successful or trying to be successful as a small business. And that trusted advice is critical. Some people say, you know, that the doctor, the equivalent of the doctor for small business and for entrepreneurs, the trusted advisor. Um, I think a lot of people in the CPA profession would say they know more about that business person, an entrepreneur, than than maybe anything else, anyone else. You know, every small business just about in the in this country, and there there's six million small businesses plus in the United States with a, with 500 or fewer employees, not counting you know, work at home, part-time type of businesses. And, and having a CPA relationship is probably the thing that's most common in those 6 million businesses. Not every one of them has a lawyer. They don't all have architects. They don't have engineers, et cetera, et cetera. But they almost every one of them has a CPA relationship. 
And I, I think that that gives particular insight that CPAs can deliver. And, and I think, you know, almost always good advice that gives that, that small business the best shot of surviving. And, and we all know that many small businesses fail and they need all of the sort of the, 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 the best of luck and the best of information that they can line up to really survive. You know, I am uh, absolutely behind 100% of that because 99% of my market, um, well, well, 100% of my market is actually those family, closely held family businesses that are multi-generational on many fronts. And uh, we serve it a lot of times as their, to be honest, we concierge CFO, right? Just to help them make good financial decisions when they need us. They keep you on retainer and you're always there to advise. So let me ask you a couple of questions relative to your mentors. You know, I, I'm going to be fair. I'm going to embarrass him a little bit. He doesn't know it, but he's one of my mentors, folks. Barry's always been uh, a, a sounding board I can call and get a hold of, especially after my Sooners get beat 49 to nothing from Texas. But Barry, we're not going to talk about that. I don't want to go back there. <laughs> that was a rough Saturday for me. Uh, I was there in person, saw the bloodbath. But anyway, my point is, what uh, what are the names of some of your, if you can share them, your mentors in life that you still have today? Well, you know, I'm very fortunate in that the way our governance process is structured, we have a different chair, chairman, chairwoman, depending on what title they want to use uh, each year. And we have a third of our board, and it's now a global board that rotates each year. And in a lot of ways, I view myself as sort of a, a amalgamation of all these different insights and these perspectives to become chair, chairman, chairwoman of the American Institute of CPAs and now on a global basis, you're gonna be a really, really, really quality person. To be on the board, you're gonna be a really, really quality person. We have seven, almost 700,000 members around the globe. And you know we have a board of about 26 people. So and those serve, they serve three year periods and Jimmy, you were on the board. And if you just think about um, if you just think about the, what it takes to get to there, and it, they're going to be quality people. So, I, you know, I'm a, I really believe I'm, a, I'm an amalgamation of a lot of different people's perspectives and the ability to listen to that and to assimilate what's important from that. As it relates to specifics, you know, we always influence, I think everybody will find an influencer in their, in their college education. I, I think I could point to some professors, but I went to work in a very small firm, under 20 people. And I sit here today, I went to a very small university and, and, and being exposed to people who were just really, really good people. I, I tell this story all the time. I was I, you know, right out of college, I was making a very small sum of money compared to today. And about nine months into the job, I was offered almost a double in pay in a, in a, from a client. And um, I walked down the hall, I had maybe the gumption to do it. He's, he's no longer with us. He's passed away, but I walked into the managing partner's office and I, and I said, Hey, you know, I make X and I'm, I'm being offered almost two X. And, you know, that's a lot of money. Can we just talk about it? And the two partners in the firm took me to lunch. It was a three-hour lunch. And they, you know, they didn't adjust my pay, but they painted a picture for me of what partnership was like and making partner be became very important to me. And that was really a very significant part of my life because had I taken that job, I'd have never ended up CEO of the American Institute of CPAs are involved in the profession in the same way. And they had, you know, they, they were willing to paint that picture for me, but they also 
sort of told it like it was, and they weren't going to adjust my pay. And I had to make that position, that decision on, on what was, you know, was before me in life. So that, you know, that is clearly a, um, a, a role model set. And, you know, I could start naming a bunch of people in our profession that were role models to me. And, and, and it would be unfair because I would leave some of them out, but I get the, the real benefit of, of interacting with people in every walk of life that are, that are CPAs. And when you just take the time to listen and, and ask the right questions to people, you will be influenced. But I'd also be remiss if I didn't say I was, you know, I don't turn, I also turn to some of the people who are my reports and, and work for us. Mm-hmm. We have fantastic staff and they become role models too, because they they approach things differently and we don't always agree. And, and you know, we have a staff globally of about 1200 people. And I'm always amazed that when I see young people coming up or people who have been with me every day that I've been at the Institute now, almost 20, 28 years, um, is it's just you learn from all of those people. So I think if you just pay attention, you have a lot of role models in life. Yeah, you're going to laugh. Not all of my role models are older than me, and I'm glad you brought up. I know I'm going to embarrass her a little bit, but uh, we had Sue Coffee. Susan Coffee is one of the most talented people, uh, you know, that I guess I've worked with and had a chance to get to know, including yourself, that I feel has a real vision for the organization, for the association, and for the profession as a whole. And I think she does an outstanding job. Every time I get to talk with her, I learn something new about what she's looking at, thinking about, and where she's wishing to go with the profession. So I know you're doing the same with her. So she just a quick story. Sue is fantastic, and she's one of my reports. But way back in 1995, when I became CEO, about three months after I did a major reorganization, and she was the second person I promoted um, in the organization. She was there before me. And, you know, now today she's one of our, she's been for a long time, part of our executive team. And she is fantastic, but, but our entire executive team, it, it meets that, that test and many people who have retired and moved on and other things as well. So um, you learn from everybody. You really do. I, I think the key thing is my dad said, and I don't always utilize this properly, but my dad said, the reason the good Lord gave you two ears and one mouth, you need to shut up and listen more, Jimmy. So, <laughs> uh, especially around much of you more talented people like Sue and yourself, I, I need to do that more often. So let me ask you though. So, so what's important to Barry Melanson about leaving a legacy in the profession that we have that I just love. It's been a great career for me. And I know you've just enjoyed a great career. Why would you want to leave a legacy? What would you like for it to be? Well, I mean, first off, you know, from just a U.S. perspective, I, you know, I represent more than 400,000 CPAs here in the United States. And as I said, if you take a global perspective, almost 700,000 different brands associated around the globe. But look, I, I honestly believe that you would be hard pressed to take a collection and I'll just use U.S. here for a second and take 400,000 people of any walk of life or any background and find a better collection of people than the 400,000 in the CPAs. And look, every, every group has weak links, but the reality is that people in our profession wanna do the right things. They give back tremendously to their communities. They try to help people as we were talking about with small business or do the right things on a, on a large business perspective. And, and so when I think about the quality, the collective quality of all those people, you know, what, what I want to give back is having helped 
evolve the profession. The profession, every business and trade and profession has to evolve. And uh, we're the most global of all professions. Um, we're state regulated and we function nationally. And so um, I view the profession and the men and women in the profession is just this incredible asset to society and to business. And I wanna do everything I possibly can to help create the evolution that's that we have been creating for now 27 years in the profession. And it's a rapidly changing world, it's complex, and it's important for the profession to evolve. We don't get it all right, but the profession has to, um, I think, be given sort of the permission to change. Our staff is absolutely tired of hearing me say, every morning I wake, and wake up and think about the profession, then I think about the men and women in the profession and how they're impacted by it. And then thirdly, I think about the organization that I have a fiduciary responsibility to. Because if the profession isn't successful, there's really no need for our organization. And you know, change is hard. And, and we have been through a lot of change and we will continue to go through a lot of change. And so I, I view to a large degree um, being a, a, a champion for that change and maybe a permission granter for that change. And I think it's really important to society and to business. Our, our purpose is we, we power trust, opportunity, and prosperity. And that's how I view the profession is it's really important from a trust perspective, we create opportunity for people in all walks of life and thus elevate prosperity. You can look at every underdeveloped economy of the world or every developing economy of the world. And what is common about them when those economies move to a different stature, to a more developed, effective economy, is the presence of a professional accountancy profession because of the commitment people make to professionalism and helping to root out fraud. And we don't get it right every time, as I say, as a profession. But it exists, and that and it exists when, when societies evolve. And so um, that's that's how I feel about it, and that's really what I what I hope my legacy is. I think that's a great one, but I will say to you too. I've always told people when I've had the fortune to go speak, and I go speak at some universities now that COVID's lifted. And uh, the last one I spoke was my alma mater at East Central University, another small school. I had five thousand students. I don't know about Nichols State, but we had five thousand. We students. had six. We had six thousand. <laughs> it was a bigger school then. I got to tell you, I go back to tell them, and I speak to their accounting department and. The kids that are majors in accounting, I said, let me just explain this. We in the accounting profession are the core function of any developing economy. And I tell them this and I go, you cannot be a successful country without good systems in place. And a big part of that on the economic side has to be the accounting profession, you know, uh, giving stability to the market. So I got I got a question for you. So we had this COVID disruption, as you're well aware, it affected many, many of our members, affected many, many of our team that work for the association. Um, a lot of that was a change that I know was difficult to administer. Tell me some of the takeaways from that particular change that was thrust upon you and the team at the association. You didn't ask for it, but you got it. And I want to say today, and to all the men and women that are supporting us as a team members there at the association, I thought they did a heck of a job because I got through to people. And I mean, there were deadlines being moved all the time by the IRS. There were things issued by the SBA that they didn't give you any real guidelines or rules to follow for CPAs. It was a time of turmoil. And I really felt like our team got it right. So what did you learn from that? 
Yeah, well, look, we took a lot of risk in that. I, I would say that the first phase of government support for the American economy was a great example of a, a public-private partnership. And it was delivered through banks and our profession predominantly to the small businesses of the country. On the individual side, some of the support to the individuals was done through government activities. Later on, as we as COVID lingered and we got into different administrations, and this isn't a political statement, it's just that philosophies changed and, and the need for speed changed. But when there was a need for speed, it was a public-private partnership. And, and I think we, we, we didn't solely lead that, but we were one of the leaders of that. And that made the difference with small businesses surviving. And I can tell you, our position was when there wasn't answers, we interpreted for the government and knew we could get you know, different answers later. And we tried to be very transparent about that. Um, but that is something we learned that we could do that and, and that it was needed in, in the sort of the spur of the moment of the speed. Um, and, and, and I, I think also, you know, the government did step up in a lot of ways. We can second guess now. And frankly, the speed was critical. And we said at the time, look, you're going to have fraud when you do something very quick. But if you want people to survive in their jobs and small businesses, you're going to have to accept some level of that. There's not going to be perfection. And we said, look, people are going to go back and second guess that. And people do. But the reality is, is that we needed the speed and we shouldn't forget that. The speed was very, very important. And I hope, you know, the government learned a little bit that when there's speed and there's need to be agility, that a government, you know, or a public-private partnership is the way to do it. Unfortunately, we don't do that enough. But I do think that that's a critical component of what everybody should learn about. You know, and, and I agree totally. So we we don't even do typical services. We're a wealth management firm now that does everything on a tax-efficient basis. So we use our CPA as our trusted advisor credential to set us apart. We understand the business side of it. We're getting calls from CPA firms going, can you help me figure out what we're needing to do here? They, they've given us now the money that's been distributed, but they didn't tell us what the guidelines were about how it's going to be taxed or if it's going to be taxed or whatever. So I just love that part about this profession. It always keeps me on my toes. There's one thing I always say that's constant in this profession, and that's change. So <laughs> that is true. let me ask you this, friend. So if you took away this stellar career you've had in the CPA profession and you could set it aside and you could look back and go, what? other profession would you have undertaken if you hadn't gone in this direction? What would that be? Well, I probably would have liked to be baseball commissioner. That I think I could have done that. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people would say that I would have probably gone into government or politics had I not taken the job. If I'd have stayed, if I'd have stayed in public practice, I think, I think there'd have probably been some opportunities for me in that. I, I do think public service is important and you know, I, I do think wise and smart people and, you know, going into politics is much worse today. I'm not sure I would do it today, but I think I think those are some of the things that that are there. But, um, you know, I, I think when you think about what we bring as far as the integrity and, and, and trying to do the right thing, I think there's a lot of places and baseball is is just a passion of mine. So I think that that's, you know, sort of works from that standpoint. Um, you know, I, I could have seen myself in a university setting. I could have seen myself in, um, like I said, in government service or, or politics. Um, and and I, I think I could have functioned pretty well in, in, in some kind of large business as well. But um, um, I wouldn't trade what I've been able to experience for any of those. 
This episode of Live a Life by Design is sponsored by Compass Capital Management. Life has a way of overwhelming you. At Compass Capital Management, you will receive confidence in your financial security as we provide direction, clarity, and vision for your future. Our unique process, the Life Plan Solution, will be the guide to you reaching your goals and realizing your dreams in life. Stop worrying about your future and contact Compass Capital Management to help you live the life you desire. Go to www.compasscapitalmgt.com and request your retirement account or employer plan review today. Register principal securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research Incorporated, a broker-dealer member FINRA SIPC. Jimmy J. Williams is an investment advisor representative of Compass Capital Management LLC, a registered investment advisor. Cambridge and Compass Capital Management LLC are not affiliated. 321 South 3rd Suite 4, McAllister, Oklahoma, 74501. All right, I'm going to throw one at you you didn't mention, and I really think this role would have been a good one for you, SEC Commissioner, NCAA. <laughs> NCAA, not the Securities and Exchange Commission. No, 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 yeah. NCAA. I'm talking about football. Yeah. We're back on the real stuff in life, Barry. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I put baseball into that into that level. Clearly, the NCAA has had its challenges, and you know they're a big not-for-profit, just like our professional organization is. Yeah, I could have done that. Um, it's it's um, it's a different avenue. I, I do think earlier some of the some of the, the issues, and it's, I'm not here to second guess tough decisions on that, but some of the issues of, of sort of caring for the athlete uh, in that environment with the big money um, probably could have been addressed in different ways. And you know, maybe the pendulum has swung now with NIL and other things way too far. And Maybe there'll be some balance, but I think a decade or 15 years ago, some of the things could have been done to really address that. And we all heard stories about, you know, where there were violations when somebody went back for a funeral or things of that nature. And, and they had programs in place that weren't widely used, but I, I think that could have all been handled better. Um, and it's obviously big business, you know, I mean, NCAA football is big business. So let me uh, take us to a place I hadn't planned on going, but I just want your opinion because I'll be very frank and I'll always speak the truth to anything, but I'm not a big fan of NIL and I'm not a big fan of the portal. These guys are changing teams so quickly. I can't buy a t-shirt or Jersey with their name on it that I don't have peel off letters. I mean, <laughs> so I, I, I I'm, I'm kind of old school, Barry. Tell me how you feel about NIL. If you don't mind me putting you on the spot a little bit and uh, talk about the portal a little bit. I think NIL with some proper regulation is fine. I do think the athletes, um, you know, they, they take a lot of risk, particularly in a sport like football and the university level. I, I also think that being able to transfer transfer when, you know, big name coaches transfer and they, they were recruited by a particular coach. I mean, we can all say the love of our, whoever we pull for is the reason why a young person should go to a university is for the love of, Oklahoma, or in my case, LSU or whatever, uh, the reality is, is that coaches recruit those people there. And when they're fired or when they, when they change jobs, I think flexibility there is probably appropriate. So the portal is not terrible. And also, frankly, some kids get put into a situation where, you know, maybe they were highly recruited and maybe they haven't matured or whatever and be able to perform. And maybe they can drop down or go to a different school and have a chance to do more with their life or get a different education. And so it's probably got to have some rules like, and they've put some in now, like limited windows for that to do, you know, how many times can you do it? And then the NIL, I do think it probably would be managed, but it could probably be better if it was more, you know, 
transparently managed and, and centrally managed in some way, maybe by a conference or by a school, um, so that I, I just worry about, we haven't seen the fallout of all of it. You know, some, right. of these, some of these young players, maybe not paying their taxes on it or not knowing how to manage money. I, you know, maybe they'll be great at it, but we're not far enough in it to know where some of the ugly fact patterns might be. And, and, I, and I think it's incumbent upon the, the universities, the conferences and the NCA to try to put some parameters there that still gives opportunity for the young players but but also make sure that they don't step off the wrong end of a of a wobbly board, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. And and I'm my, one of my big concerns with that is, of course, is uh, the agency issue. I just feel like sometimes the agent may not put the best interest of the athlete for the long term in a perspective to gain funds. Now you don't get that instant gratification, get the money now or whatever. And then I also worry about the morale of the team. So you know, I've got a a, a great quarterback or maybe a halfback running back back there, and he's knocking down. You know, high six digits for NIL, but you know, the old line the guy is sitting up there getting 30 grand, you know, and I know that's probably more money than they've ever had legally paid to them. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, that's causes morale issues, you know, if we don't see this treated right, or you know, we're a team, that's kind of one of my concerns. But I, I hear your point. Yeah, I think there's some things though, you know, life is not always fair and it doesn't always come out even for everyone. So I think there's actually some ways to teach life lessons in some of that disparity as well. But it's going to take some real dedication to those nuances and really have people who are in leadership positions have the capabilities of really explaining that and trying to connect those dots. No, I, I agree totally. Good good answer. So you've already told me your favorite team's LSU. How are you liking the new coach? You know, I think he's done a great job. I mean, they're playing for the, the conference championship. They, they won the SEC West. No one thought about that, that they would do that this year. You have to remember they had 39 scholarship players at the end of last year. They went to a bowl game and they played Kansas State. They literally had a wide receiver playing quarterback. So they, um, in that bowl game, they, they were decimated between people going pro and some of the transfer stuff and a change of coaches. And, you know, 2019, they had probably one of the greatest seasons, maybe arguably the greatest season ever. And um, so Brian Kelly's done a good job. He's, he's, he's been very disciplined. The team has played for him. You know, anytime you can, you can win the SEC West, it's, it's a tough league, which is Oklahoma's going to find out about that when they come into that league. Um, And uh, anytime you can win the SEC West, it's a, it's a great accomplishment and uh, we'll see what they do against Georgia. So this is my, my, uh, not wager, but just a fun bet with you that as we come down to play you guys at LSU, you and I are going to get together and we're going to have some dinner somewhere. And I'm going to have some of that good, uh, good Cajun food with you. Is that a, is that a deal? Yeah, that, that's okay. a deal. What we'll do is we'll, we'll uh, over dinner, we'll play a videotape of that semifinal game in which we scored 63. I think it was uh, on, uh, on the Sooners. So we'll, yeah, no, 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 we don't want to play that. <laughs> <laughs> that one should be in the books. That's a history book. No. <laughs> well, hey, uh, you know, I got to tell you, uh, Kelly to me is a class act, not unlike Lou Holtz. This guy has good morals. He has his team in good command. And they are, you know, these these kids are just really kind of binding with him uh, during this first season. Uh, what's his potential look like there? Are we talking maybe uh, you're going to get the big one this year? You think they go all the way? Uh, I think I think it's a hard road for him this year. They're, they're still short on talent. And look, you can be a great coach and have great talent and not win a national championship. So uh, it's hard. It's hard to win a national championship. 
but to be to be you know as he said all along you know to be to be playing meaningful games in october and november is the key and they are and no one really thought that they would do that and he's you know he's got a great class coming in is actually the next two look very very good and it's going to be so competitive you know and when texas and oklahoma join the sec it's it's just going to be murderous row when you when you, when you play that schedule and so I gotta tell you though you love these road games it brings it back into arkansas you brings it back into tennessee right i mean you got some games in here that are going to be outstanding missouri uh these are places we can travel real easily get on a plane you're there in about an hour right uh so i see this being a lot of fun uh let me ask you a couple of things though about uh about the real world if you could take your fingers right now and snap them just to do this and you had a capability to perform one miracle in this world what would that miracle be? Uh, right now, I mean, you could go in a lot of different places, but again, wearing a U.S. hat, I, I, I just think that we got to have our elected officials understand that our system was set up to do compromise. And so I'd fix those things that prevent that. Social media prevents that. Extremes on both sides prevent that. We have to compromise. Our system was built on that. The checks and balances, particularly in the Senate, is, is, is deemed to be a compromise. So what I believe is that we, we've, we've, we've begun acting like a parliamentary system, which parliamentary systems, the compromises occur at the party level because there's multiple parties, but people vote typically you know, down the line. And right now we, we have so many people that are elected in the House and the Senate that vote down the party lines and aren't compromising. But, but parliamentary systems are set up for five parties or eight parties or whatever, and they make these compromises to get a majority. That's We have a two-party system, and that means the individuals have to compromise. They have to find things that... That they can that they can agree on and find ways to for the good of the country and the good of the vast majority of people, not just the extremes who are allowed on social media uh, to find compromise. And we have lost that. I've been representing the, the profession in Washington for way more than thirty years, and it, it's just awful that people cannot find you know, grounds to compromise on. And, and then, and sometimes when they do, they get crushed by the media or get crushed by social media as well. And so the public has a role in it as well. So I would, I would work on that compromise capability. You know, and, and again, I don't, I don't know the president personally, uh, I, but I would say this too, that if you remember back president Reagan, I was just a young lad and I do remember who was speaker of the house then. Do you recall? Uh, Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill. A Democrat, very strong hand, had a great speaker of the House, right? So what happened is President Reagan invited him to lunch at the White House on a pretty frequent and consistent basis so they could communicate and get things done. I'd like to say, uh, I, I echo your sentiments, I'd like to see us get back to that point. Um, again, not picking a side. I just think that it, sometimes when we meet in the middle, we get the best for the entire country, right? So yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you cited Reagan. I, I think in at least in my lifetime, the two presidents that got most that the most done were Reagan and Clinton. One was a Republican, yeah. one was a Democrat. They both understood the power of the White House. I have been told this, I haven't audited it, but but they supposedly during each of them's eight years as president conducted more dinners, state dinners in the White House, brought people together than any other presidents, certainly any other presidents in modern time. And, and they both they both compromised with Congresses that were of the opposite party. And, and 
And there's something to be learned from that. And and unfortunately, we don't see it today. You know, a a funny thing, and I mean this with all seriousness, is I've been to President Reagan and President Clinton's libraries, and both are phenomenal history. If you like history as I do, I just love to study that history. But President Clinton did something I thought was very, very wise. He's a great communicator for one, but after his midterm elections didn't turn out as well as he wanted, he lost in the the House and the Senate, if you recall, by a pretty wide margin, he did this thing that we don't see a lot. Now, he pivoted and he said, you know, I've got to work with these guys. And and I appreciated the fact that, like you said, he got a tremendous number of his projects, as well as what was on the plat, uh, you know, platform for the Republicans at that time, got it done. So that C word seems to be something that's lost it out of favor, but I'm not sure why, but hopefully we'll get it back soon. So real quick, tough question for you. What are some of the most challenging issues of the profession right now that you face or that you see coming up on your whiteboard that says, I've got to tackle it? Well, there's a lot. I mean, the pace of change is great. That's a that's an important one. And um, I think I think there's pressures on small firms to to be able to make the technology investments that are necessary. Um, I think the complexity of business um, it adds to some of the difficulty of what we do and, and how we do it. Um, we live in a hyper-regulatory environment, which adds to the complexity. We have an IRS that, from a service perspective, is limping along, uh, and some would say is, is totally non-functional. Uh, and that, and that is, that is a problem. Um, human capital probably rises to the top of the list. Uh, human capital is a difficulty for lots of different industries. There's, there's more than a million less um, students in four-year colleges than pre-COVID. Now, that's not in accounting. That's in all majors, but we get our share of that. Uh, there's about 20, almost 25% less in community colleges. So young people are valuing higher education differently. And that's affecting just an awful lot of different places and different types of businesses as it relates to the human capital element. Um, and, and you know, you just add all of those things together. It's a difficult business environment. And then, you know, we're, we know we're going through, you know, higher interest rates and high inflation and more, more economic difficulty. And I think that that, you know, we'll get through that. But I mean, that for the short run, that makes it that makes it difficult. Yeah, you know, and at the end of the day, the resources to accomplish and tackle these most important items, you can't just sit here and take one at a time. You've got them on many fronts. You have a great team to help you with that. So so I've got to ask, what's your daily routine to help maximize the efficient use of your time? I mean, you've been, you've just, you, before you came on today on the, in the live version, you, you basically said, hey, I've been to Asia, I've been to Europe, I've been to the, back to the U.S. Uh, you are a busy guy. How do you maximize the best use of your time? What's your routine? Well, we, you know, I had you said we we have a great team of people, and I get a lot of information, and we we do a lot of quick calls and on on emerging topics if there's a need for us to have a sort of a meeting of the minds. Um, that that is a that is a very big one. I'm prolific with email and texting and things of that nature, um, and and that you know certainly works you know, works well from that standpoint. And, you know, we have great people who have accountabilities and they know what they're doing. And, and so, you know, you deal with hopefully the most important topics. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I think it's, it's an element of, of how do you, how do you find out the right information that you need to have to help make the right decisions? And, and that's, that's more art than science, to be frank. Um, 
so it's a combination of just of just working through things and trying to not get bogged down into too many different you know small things that really don't make a difference however in a member organization sometimes you know res- responding to somebody's email or phone call or whatever goes a long long way because they don't necessarily think that you will and I try to allocate a fair amount of time to that because you always hear and learn something different um, in that space. So, I, if I had to, if I had to give the one thing though, it's it's a multitude of you know a bunch of different meetings or a bunch of different interactions in the key issues of the day, um, and trying to keep them as concise as possible and at the right level. You know that's great stuff, and I will say this: being a member organization. I've uh, been fortunate to serve them in the boards to help run the organization, and I appreciate that. But I get even emails from people that are in the various states. You know, they might have seen me speak somewhere or something like that, and they're, like, concerned about what to do and so forth. Just help guiding them to the right team member, for example, is is a big help. And for you to answer their emails, I think that uh, that answers where your heart is with the organization. You know, it, a lot of small firms, when I say small, you know, less than our big four and our top 100s and below our 400, we've got a lot of small firms as members and members in the industry that just seek out and need information quickly. And our team at the Institute uh, and the association are good to do that. So I've got a couple more questions. I'm going to let you go. You've been very gracious, but I have to ask this one. I always like to ask our guests this question. What has been thus far your most fulfilling event in your life? Um, you know, I, I've had the opportunity to be with with several presidents in relatively small uh, environments, um, very important leaders in other countries as well. I always find that very, uh, very rewarding to just, you know, people who have ascended to those positions uh, to be able to interact with them in some cases, you know, one on one even. And I think that that um, that is that has been obviously very fulfilling. But but I I got to come back to the the men and women I represent, um, you know, and it's not just me our entire organization, you know, it's just the quality of the people that um, that are that are CPAs or professional accountants around the world, and 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 just hearing many of their stories and 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 seeing what they do and the passion they have, that's pretty it's pretty hard to beat that. You know I. Um closest I ever got to the president was when I was in the White House and I got to see George W. Bush wave at us with our tour group as he was walking with, of course, his team, his security team. And I thought, you know, that guy's just the coolest guy on the planet. So I went down to his, uh, I don't know if you've seen at SMU, his library, it's it's outstanding as well. Uh, And I sent an email. Now, you and I both know that president has a lot on his plate, but I sent an email to him and asked for a signature copy of his book. I'm, I'm buying the book, and I just asked, can I get a signed copy? Now, I've got the book, and it looks an awful lot like his signature, so I hope that's him that signed it. <laughs> you never know. So um, real quickly, last question I always want to ask you is this. Um, if you could leave our listeners today with just one statement of advice about influence, leadership, or legacy, what would you leave us today as that one statement of advice? Yeah, I, I think probably it, it revolves around humbleness. I, I do think um, treating everybody, you know, no matter where they are, who they are, in the way you'd want to be treated, and and not not think of yourself in a leadership position. So it's just more leading by by being accessible to other people and 
and and and being on par with everyone you know we don't have uh, you know a, a right to to think of ourselves differently in that standpoint and so i i think that that's that's really really important you know i do a lot of things to try to do that i won't go through the list but to to just try to make sure you stay connected and humble and 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 people don't see you as trying to you know put on airs and stuff. And I just think that that's not the right thing. I mean, we're all people, we're all trying to do the right things. And um, I, I think leaders can can exhibit that. I, I'll, I'll give you a real quick example. In the other way, I was in a meeting many, several years ago and a very famous person, there was a lot of famous people in the room, but there was one that was particularly, not, you know, I was maybe one of the least famous people, if you want to say that in the room. And it, just the way that person, I won't say the person's name, but just the way that person was handling, it was a he handling himself. It sort of just like frustrated me a little bit and, you know, who he was paying attention to and things. And, and so it was an all day meeting. And, and by the afternoon break, I said, you know what, I'm just going to go up and I'm going to shake my shake this person's hand and I'm going to make him talk to me. And um, I did that. And and it, it was it, it, it was not a stewardship of leadership by that person in that meeting. And, and there were others that were incredible from that, that perspective, but he wasn't. And so in my, own, my, in my own way, I just wanted to send that message by being the, one of the least, you know, important people in the room, but just having to him take a few minutes to have to say hello to me and have a, even a, a one minute conversation. So um, I just think that's really important. I got to tell you a couple of my favorite historic presidents, and uh, I've been to both of their libraries as well. If you can't tell, I'm kind of a library geek, uh, Barry. I enjoy going to presidential libraries. <laughs> uh, but here's my point. I go to Abraham Lincoln, and here's the thing about Lincoln. He'd go into a cabinet meeting, and of course, he surrounded himself with people that weren't necessarily his allies, right? And so his cabinet was well diversified in terms of thought leaders, <laughs> And a gentleman uh, left there speaking, as the board would have it. Now, whether this is true or not, I don't know. But they said that the gentleman would leave after me, Mr. Lincoln already left. And he walks out of the room and he says, you know, after hearing that discussion of the president, he said, you know, I'm I'm not certain why I'm not the president. You know, he elevated everybody to feel their best, to contribute their best, to get the best for the country. And then I want to leave you with one other quote that I love. So President Eisenhower, uh, Abilene, Kansas, uh, one of the things I loved about him was is his leadership style. So this works in my line of work, as I'm sure it does yours. I always tell everyone out there when they ask me, they go, you have done a great job leading your team. I said, let me explain this. Uh, it's all of us leading in our areas of responsibility that makes this organization function so so well and, and takes care of our clients as we need to at a high level. But I said, I will say this, as President Eisenhower said, when something goes wrong, I take the blame. When it goes right, I take none of the credit. So that's kind of how I lead. <laughs> Would yeah, you subscribe to that? <laughs> yeah, no, that's beautiful. There's, there's no question that's beautiful. And, and, and it, you know, great leaders, I think, do subscribe to that. Um, it, it, it's every day is different. And, and I do think that, that different, different circumstances require different skills. And sometimes you have to take that lead. But I do think the most, the more you can be inclusive of people, uh, the better and to thank them and all of those types of things. I'll leave you with one quote I use and my staff is tired is that the pursuit of perfection is the enemy of progress. And, 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 and that is so true. And that if you, you know, it, it, you, you can't hold people to perfection because none of us are perfect and nothing that you ever try to do or plan to do goes perfect. 
but uh, you know, trying to find that perfect answer, that perfect next step, um, actually is is not the right strategy. It's it's much better to mess some things up than to to try to be paralyzed by trying to be perfect. So I think that's a that's important for to set that tone as well. That is great advice, Barry. I know you're busy. I'll let you get back to your busy lifestyle, my friend, and keeping the world spinning. It has been truly an honor to have you on Live a Life by Design today. And uh, we look forward to uh, you and seeing you again soon, I hope. And in the meantime, wish you, your family, a wonderful holiday season and a Merry Christmas, my friend. Same to you and to all the listeners. And uh, I've enjoyed being with you, Jimmy. And thank you for, uh, as you said, for being my friend as well. So have a good one. Thank you. One of the greatest opportunities of my day is to get to speak with people that are such wonderful leaders such as Barry. This has been an episode I've been looking so forward to because it just tells you how genuine he is and how compassionate he is about how he leads a giant organization. 700,000 plus members, 1,200 plus team members across the globe and some very, very difficult tasks that they have to fulfill. With that said, our challenge for you this week, my friends, is simply this. I'd like for you to think about his statement he made at the end of this episode, and let's work on the continued progress in the direction of our goals, as opposed to trying to be perfect at everything we do. His quote was, the pursuit of perfection is the enemy of progress. This week, I want you to look at what you're doing in your goals. I want you to examine yourself internally and just see, am I making enough progress in the areas or am I trying to be perfect in one or two areas? With that said, it is truly an honor to be with you every Monday morning for your motivational minutes and hopefully that you gain from this as much as we gain from your comments and your wonderful words that you send to us on our social media. Go to our Facebook page at Live a Life by Design Community. We'd love to hear your comments for future shows, questions you may have, comments about what we can do better. We take that to heart. Until next week, go ahead, live your life by design. You can get a complete transcript of today's show online at livealifeby.design. If you like the show, please tell your friends and family about it. Also, we would be very appreciative if you would leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been a Life Master Key production. The program is copyrighted by Jimmy J. Williams and Company. All rights reserved. Our production assistant is Amy Cotton. Our intern is Brindley.